1: because it's going to be wheels up. Let's get this show in the air. Well, my friend, it's another episode of Flight Safety Detectives. And of course, it's always great to get together with you to, uh, to talk about aviation safety things and everything in between. And I hope that you're uh, doing well. I know that you're expecting some sort of snowstorm up there this
0: week. A big one, a northeaster, a nor'easter, as they say.
1: Oh, please, John, you know, a big one. Jeez, what are you going to get? Six inches of snow? Come on.
0: They're predicting 12 to 17, which are always wrong anyway, so.
1: I was going to say, that's just to get your attention.
0: Yep, I believe that's true.
1: It'll just peter out. You'll be out there with a broom sweeping off your doorstep.
0: Yeah, I hope you're right.
1: Yeah, well, we we had a couple of little snowstorms come through here. It's just cold now, but. Typical, perfect Colorado day, blue sky, snow on the ground, and 50 degrees, so it works.
0: Yeah, we're not that lucky after a snowstorm that the numbers are usually single digit.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's not bad. I mean, it's 16 degrees, I think, out right now, but the humidity is at 17%, so I can handle that. So, works for me. So, you've been traveling?
0: I have not been traveling. I'm thinking about it. But I uh, haven't done anything local travel, nothing too far away.
1: Yeah, I just got back from a trip not too long ago, and I'm leaving again uh, this week on a trip back to D.C. And, of course, now with the COVID vaccine now being circulated uh, amongst first responders and, of course, all the hospital folks, I think that, one, it's great because it's hopeful and it's going to give some confidence, I believe, to to people to really take the next steps. The sad thing and fearful thing that I have is that those people that get vaccinated are going to think they're bulletproof and they're going to get complacent. And we talk about complacency and distractions all the time in aviation. And I'm just afraid that people are going to think that they're bulletproof because they got a vaccine, which, you know, could be detrimental if we're not careful.
0: I think that's true. I think that we already had a lot of complacency I had it with one of my daughters. With all that was going on, she went out to a restaurant with her girlfriends, and guess what? Three of them, one of the two girlfriends that she was with, didn't know it, but she had it, and she infected the, the other two. Wow. Well, hopefully she's doing well. Yeah, she, got, she had two bad days with difficulty breathing. She felt like even though she was breathing in, it, it wasn't getting down there but she's all right now. She's, in fact, she was out today, so she's up and about. But it took 12 days for her to be able to get out of the house, and and she's not done yet. She said she still feels weak.
1: Yeah, and that's the, I think that's the big concern, is that the lingering effects after the major bout is different with everybody. Some people get over it relatively quickly, and then others are still in hospitals, and it's... You know, and I think they're the science is still working on trying to figure out why that is, and that's going to be, I think, some valuable information
0: once they get that piece of the puzzle figured out as well. Yeah, and now they're saying that early indicators are the loss of smell and taste, which she lost both quickly. Before she was sick, she lost both the smell and the taste.
1: Was that for the full time she had it, or just was that she still temporary?
0: has no smell and taste? really yeah so she doesn't know and i haven't seen that whether it comes back or not i haven't seen any definitive thing that says it's come back oh i just got a, a study that was done in italy on that but i haven't had a chance to read it it was just posted on the internet
1: one of the things that's come out in this past week of course, is the FAA and how they're uh, looking at COVID vaccines with pilots and actually with flight crews. And I didn't see anything about maintenance folks. John, did you? But I know that they've come out and said that if you get a vaccine as a pilot, you're basically in in a downtime for 48 hours that you can't fly or do anything like that. And I didn't see anything about mechanics if that applied to mechanics or flight attendants.
0: I didn't see it either, but it doesn't surprise me because they're always the last for the FAA to consider for anything.
1: Yeah. Well, I would just expect that, you know, especially flight attendants, if you're worried about the pilots up there and putting them down for 48 hours, just because of the initial effects of it, you'd expect that, uh, they would make the
0: the whole flight crew, right?
1: Yeah, exactly. So it's going to be interesting. And, and again, you know, when you look at those effects, I mean, they're believing that it, this is a standardized effect. That is, if I get a vaccine today, that over this 48-hour period, you know, a lot of people have described that they had sore arm and they didn't feel good and, and that kind of stuff, and then it went away. But they're believing that that is a standard, that it, that's the way it's going to affect everybody. I mean, I'm not sure I would have gone that far, even with the science. And I've been reading a lot of stuff that, yeah, you get a shot. It could be a week before you recover from that shot. Yes. I think it's really going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. And, you know, it it is great that the vaccine is now being circulated and hopefully, you know, we'll get through this. But again. I really am concerned with complacency and some of the attitudes of, well, I mean, I'm dealing with people that are flying right now who said, yeah, I had it. I got over it, you know, and I'm not worrying about it anymore. Well, why? Because all the stuff I've read says that you become vulnerable again in a three to six month period, depending on how bad you had it, your body type, your blood type and all that other stuff. It doesn't I mean just because you had it and your body built up some antibodies to it doesn't mean that you're now immune to it.
0: I just read a few minutes ago that there's a mutation now of this, and they're just discovering it, and it, you know, what does that mean? Is it going to be able to reinfect everybody that's had it already because it's mutated?
1: Yeah, and that's some of the research that I've been doing because I, I've heard that there's 18 different strands or types of COVID out there because it's mutated now. And I'm still trying to find out whether the vaccine covers all of those, some of those, one of those. You know, it's kind of like the flu. You get a different flu shot every year. It's for that particular strain. So all of these things are going to continue to be a big issue, not only in our society, of course, but definitely in the aviation world, just because, you know, you get your vaccine, you feel good. And then, you know, three months later, you find yourself at a hospital because you have some other version of uh, of the COVID virus. So and that's going to be something that we're going to have to watch.
0: Yes. Yes. And that, com- that complacency affects all of us. Well, I'd like to remind all our listeners that today's show is brought to you by Avemco Insurance. And they are in my mind the premier insurance provider for single engine airplanes in the united states and you have had good experience with them greg on your, your uh...
1: i have i had a piper comanche and i had the airplane insured through a vemco and a couple of the issues that i've had over the years with folks flying my airplane while they didn't significantly damage the airplane i, I mean it was an insurance claim and I had a great working relationship with the Vemco. The folks were helpful. And when I discussed taking, you know, some of the actions beyond their quote normal coverage, they kind of agreed and we were able to settle on, you know, splitting the costs above and beyond what they were going to originally pay for. So I I really endorsed them. They took care of me. They took care of my airplane. The repairs were done. It was done in a timely manner. And I never Never had to question them about getting uh, reimbursed or paid for those repairs. So I've always had a great uh, relationship with Avemco, both from a personal standpoint and also a professional standpoint.
0: So if you're out there looking for insurance, give Avemco a call, 888 879 0389. And if you mention flight safety detectors, you get a 5% discount, which is not too shabby.
1: Absolutely in this day and age right now, especially people that are still owners of aircraft who have had the airplanes parked for a while and debating about whether or not they should be flying them or are they going to leave them parked until they can recover financially to support the airplane, you're still going to have to have insurance regardless. And here's another point, John, and we should probably do a show about this at some point, but you know if you're not flying the airplane, for a while, you can go into ground storage for you That is, they cut your insurance rate because you're not operating the airplane; it's just sitting idle, and you can reduce your rates. And various insurance companies have different policies, but I know that I've got an airplane right now where just have uh, hangar insurance on it. That is, the airplane sitting in a hangar; it's not operating, and so, but you still have to have it insured in case the hangar falls on it or whatever. Again. You want to be talking to uh, to Avemco and see if they can do a deal for you if you don't intend to fly your airplane in the near future. So, there's a lot of things to be learned, and I think Avemco is a great source for that.
0: Greg, I'd like to to discuss an email that I just got within the last twenty four hours, and it was from a listener who had questions around the recovery of human remains and what happens. And in reading the email, there's a little bit of a misconception on the part of of the listener in that the NTSB does not have control of the site until the coroner releases the site. Now, we work around it. I know you, Greg, have worked around the coroner. We had to work hand-in-glove with the coroner on a railroad accident, Amtrak accident in Illinois that I was involved in because it took forever for the recovery of the remains. So we were there for I think it was into the third day before the coroner finished and emergency responders and it's it's not the NTSB site, although we we get access to the site and uh, we work very closely with the coroners and sometimes we'll help get them additional assistance if there's a lot of workload. For example, in in TWA 800, we helped bring in the U.S. government mortuary team from Delaware, that that is their full-time job. And they came in to help the coroner process some of those 230 fatalities that they had. They weren't so easy to identify. But you have some experience with that on general aviation side as well.
1: Yeah, because the board, yes, they technically, as soon as that airplane crashes, it is their accident site. They determine who's going to have access and and that kind of thing. However, it's usually the first responders. They are in victim recovery or injured personnel mode, and so the board's not going to interfere with, with any of that. When it comes to victim recovery, that is recovery of human remains, you try to work. It's a choreographed dance because I, as the investigator, I want to know before they start ripping into the wreckage, what that wreckage looks like, where certain body parts or certain victims were found, because that's going to determine whether or not I have to do weight and balance issues. Or a lot of times I want to know what kind of damage has been done to the aircraft and then how it translates in the autopsy to the damage to the victim because we're looking at crash survivability, crash worthiness, survivability of the accident itself. And we can learn a lot of valuable information. So we try to work hand in hand. When I was doing general aviation airplanes out of Colorado and up in the mountains, you get a guy that crashed up at 12,000 feet. It's not real easy to get up there. And a lot of times the coroner, the medical examiner wouldn't go up there and we would do it together. And I i don't know how many times I've helped recover victims off of an accident site where, you know, we've had to put them in a body bag and bring them down to a staging area so that they could be recovered. It's as graphic as it gets when you have a high speed or high energy impact and you're, and you're helping to clean up the remains. Value Jet was another one, John. You and I, I mean, you know, I was down there. We had to work hand in hand with the medical examiner because we had to figure out a plan. I needed to recover wreckage to investigate the accident. The ME needed to recover victims. And of course, a lot of the victim remains were entangled or entwined in the wreckage. And so you have to be thoughtful when you're recovering that wreckage, but you also have to let the medical examiner do what they need to do so that they can make accurate identification. So there's a a lot of choreography that goes with uh, some of these accidents. But the board, you know, our premise has always been you take care of your business, get the injured out of there and recover the victims. But with the victims, please document as best you can. wreckage before you start tearing into it because a lot of times they recover the wreckage by the time or recover the victims and by the time i get there and look at the wreckage it's like how did that wing get over there you know it just doesn't make any sense and you don't have people there to tell you oh yeah we cut that thing off and moved it so it is a dance that is imperative that the investigators and the me or the coroner first responders they really do have to coordinate their effort.
0: Well, we have to coordinate with them because they're in control. We all look at an accident site and think it's an accident site, but they have to determine whether or not it was a murder, suicide, or whatever. So it it takes on a different point of view from their side, and we have to be conscious of that and considerate of that for them, and and likewise, they have to be considerate to the information that we need.
1: And you bring up a, a great point right there because, you know, there are crimes in the air. And I remember young in my career in California, there was a PSA BA 146 where you had a disgruntled employee bring a gun on board. He had just gotten fired, got on the airplanes. The airplane was en route. The guy got up started making uh, all sorts of threats, and then went to the cockpit and shot the crew. The airplane went into a high-speed dive and crashed in an open field. We went out there working with the FBI, not only to recover the weapon, because when we got the cockpit voice recorder, we, of course, heard the gunshot, but they wanted to recover, of course, enough of the victims who had been shot to be able to verify or validate that, in fact, they had been shot.
0: I remember that accident very well because that was uh, PSA was in the process of becoming part of US Air at the time. So I, I remember that very, very well, vividly, actually.
1: So, you know, those are the kinds of things. But uh, we appreciate the question from the listener. That's great. You know, and if any of the other listeners out there have questions like that, please feel free. To drop us an email and ask those kinds of questions, and, and we'll get an answer, whether it's between me or John, some guests or experts that we can contact.
0: Okay, and speaking of guest experts, we have one on, on schedule for today who's listening very intently to what we have to say today. So, why don't you introduce our guest, Greg?
1: Well, in the interest of full disclosure, and I won't take that beyond full disclosure because he is my best friend and happens to be a Embry-Riddle alumni. He is now the assistant chief pilot for a Fortune 500 company. He's a G450, G550 captain, and he's a jack of all trades on the farm as well. And with that, I have to watch what I say, because if I start saying something about Robert, I know he's going to make up stories about me, and the last thing I need is college stories being aired. So with that, I want to introduce you to Bob Jenkins. Robert, it is great to have you on the show.
2: Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it, and you're right. I have some stories I think your listeners would love to hear, but uh, we'll forego those for now.
1: That will never happen, ever.
0: (laughs) I don't know. I could add some of those stories myself. I (laughs) know.
1: And and see, the problem with John is he has a pot full of money that he'll pay for stories. uh, (laughs) We need
2: to get together, John.
1: (laughs) No, you don't. No, you don't. I I hope COVID sticks around for 30 years. You're not getting (laughs) out of it. Anyway, well, the reason uh, we wanted you on the show is uh, you and I have discussed over the years, Bob, is the fact that you've been in business aviation, corporate aviation for all of your career, basically. And while you're still a young man, you're not as old as dirt like John. (laughs) You got 14,000 plus flying hours and you've seen a lot. You've been in your career in business, corporate aviation. Of course, you've flown charter. And with the positions that you hold now as an assistant chief pilot in a Fortune 500 company, there's a dynamic that takes place in both of those aspects of aviation. Business aviation, John and I have dissected some accidents, and we're going to have future shows where we're going to actually dissect a couple of more corporate charter accidents. One's going to be the Gulfstream that crashed up in Aspen several years ago, killed 18 people. And of course, there was a, an accident about three years ago involving a 601 Challenger, brand new airplane to the owner. He had an experienced pilot, two inexperienced pilots, i.e. They had just come out of training and they tried to land that airplane in Aspen with a 30-knot tailwind. And so with with that being said, as a setup, you and I over the years have talked about the quality of pilots. That is business aviation, you're flying heavy iron, it's multi-millions of dollars. And there's an expectation that if you're flying for a Fortune 500 company or a NetJets or any of those guys, these folks are very experienced. They have rigorous training. And of course, because the clientele that they're flying Is in that upper echelon. It's a different caliber of pilot than possibly some of the smaller charter companies, the mom and pop operations, if you will, the the FBO that also has a charter operation. You've been in both worlds. We see this from a safety standpoint. You and I have had multiple discussions. Can you just give us your sense of the quality differences and why that might be?
2: You're talking about the quality differences between the Fortune 500 the business,
1: Yeah, the business aviation folks versus, you know, some of the, the smaller charter operators and, and that kind of thing, because there is quite a bit of difference with regard to the demographic of the pilots, the training that they receive, the operational discipline aspects, things like that.
2: Well, first of all, most of us started out as one of those charter pilots flying maybe a single engine, working our way up to a multi-engine. And if things go right, you're a professional. You do things uh, the right way, and uh, you can climb the ladder. But the definition, the consummate definition of the professional is the one that uh, does things right when no one cares or no one's looking. As far as flying a Gulfstream 550, You sit down in an interview and one important question I always had was, okay, if the weather's below minimums, what is the expectations of the guy that owns the airplane that's sitting behind you or the CEO of that airplane? Is he going to let you be the pilot in command, make the decision, or is he going to stand there and say, I've got to get in there. I've got to get in there. You know, whether you're flying a a small charter airplane or a larger airplane, You've got to do what's right. Otherwise, you guys are going to be investigating the results. And you bring
1: up this point. How hard is it to do the right thing when you know that you're being paid a specific amount of money, depending on the the type of aircraft you're flying, and you have not only the external pressure of the owner or the company, but of course now the self-induced pressure of, if I don't do this, am I going to still be employed tomorrow?
2: You've always got to weigh that, and as long as you go to minimums and you're willing to do what's legal and then get out of there, I have shot two missed approaches, and that was enough. The airport was at minimums, reported by the ASOS, but the weather was actually worse than that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure the CEO was not happy, but at least we got to an alternate, and that's always in the back of your mind. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Whether you're flying, like I said, that small that small light twin on Charter or a Gulfstream 550. I mean, that's something you, you've, you've got to be cognizant of. But the fact is, I think it enters every pilot's mind. But at least you go to minimums, you get out of there. And you can talk about that another day and, and debate it. But that's it.
1: And as a management pilot, you brought up, you know, one of the questions you would ask is, you know, if the weather's at minimums and, and what a pilot would do. What is it that you're seeing? Because you are flying in basically two different worlds right now. You do fly, of course, for this Fortune 500 company, but you also fly a small charter company in Pennsylvania that you're not getting the same caliber pilot and I and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I'm talking about it from hours of experience and, and really qualifications because a lot of these companies um, that do fly heavy iron or the big charter companies like Anetchets, their qualification requirements are so much higher than a 135 operator that might have one or two airplanes and, you know, three pilots.
2: I have run into some some issues with that in this pilot shortage. I think uh, pilots have gotten into positions that were maybe a bit over their head as a result of the pilot shortage. Now, obviously, COVID has taken care of that, unfortunately. But in training one individual, there was a huge lack of basics there. The basic attitude instrument flying was lacking. And um, I've flown with guys that were excellent button pushers. In other words, they could make that autopilot sing, but take the autopilot away, and they were in trouble. Understanding, making people understand that, uh, especially the new generation, that when the automation fails, drop down the level of automation, click, click, get rid of the autopilot, and fly the aircraft. Making people understand that, that that's the, the direction you need to go is kind of difficult sometimes. I mean, they want to correct the autopilot. If it's not doing what they wanted to do, and they're, you know, on a half-mile final and 300 feet, that's no time to be finding the right button, if you will. I've seen that, too, and that's a problem. And with this
1: automation uh, dependence, because I know the airlines have seen it quite a bit. Um, Of course, John and I have seen it from an accident and safety standpoint. But do you think this reliance on the automation, one- We're breeding that into these pilots in flight training because they are training on this new generation or technically advanced aircraft. So you have all the pretty automation there. You do have autopilot. You do have TAWS. You do have the weather depicted and that kind of stuff. And so now, while it gives them more information, are they using that information to take themselves even if they lack the qualifications or the experience, the skills, abilities, knowledge, are they using that information to go deeper into a bad situation before they make a decision? That's definitely a
2: situation that I've seen where they'll they'll pull up a thunderstorm on next ride, and they will say, Okay, I'm gonna turn left here. Now, this happened, I was in the right seat of the Gulf Stream. A gentleman thought he was navigating around a thunderstorm. Meanwhile, I'm manipulating the radar in the aircraft. And, you know, I said, that thunderstorm's not there. And he's like, "Uh, look at it, it's right here. Well, next rad is old and there was nothing there. So we were navigating around something that didn't even exist. And, you know, that comes down with understanding what you're looking at, understanding what information is being presented to you and whether it's accurate or not. And certainly it's better to navigate around the thunderstorm that doesn't exist than not navigate around one that's right in your face. No doubt about that. But uh, you also have back on the, the button pushing, I've seen people know what buttons to push at a particular time, but they had no idea what that button actually does. For example, we have what we call Felch in the in the aircraft flight level change, and a lot of guys use that inappropriately. There's functions in that in that software that you have to understand. Quite often, that's uh, that can be a problem, especially when you get into an airplane like like a Gulfstream or a Global Express or something like that. Good morning, John grounds, Canadian nine twenty.
1: We're just coming up to Alpha Juliet. Nine twenty, runway two four eight, taxi. Do you see, you know, with some of the pilots that you've been training at the one thirty five operation? Do you see? I mean, you were talking earlier about basic instrument skills. Do they really have the confidence to fly those basic instrument skills, hand fly it that is, or are they solely reliant? on the automation and they use their limited skills or their lack of confidence in their own skills as plan c if you will i've
2: seen both extremes i've seen people that could actually fly the aircraft but the automation just scared them to death and when you're trying to get a single pilot autopilot authorization from the FAA, so that you don't need a co-pilot, i.e. like in a Navajo or something like that, you have to not only be able to fly the aircraft, but you got to be able to make that autopilot work for you in lieu of a second in command. Then you have the person that's excellent at pushing all the autopilot buttons, but uh, when things go wrong, as I stated before, hand-flying the aircraft becomes something They can't handle. So I've seen both extremes.
0: Speaking of hand flying the airplane, in your corporate side, do you require your pilots to fly hand flying an airplane one leg, you know, a day, one leg a, a week, empty legs when you don't have the high priced help in the back? Actually,
2: we do quite often because we deadhead a lot uh short trips out of our home base airport and uh yeah we require the pilots to to hand fly as often as they as they can that always keeps your skill and when you go to flight safety of course you're doing the maneuvers and and whatnot in the simulator so that that kind of backs that up too unfortunately uh All of our pilots are are pretty good at uh, hand-flying the aircraft. And it's ironic, John, because when I got my first G4 type rating, the theory back then was just coming off from flying the aircraft. During my type ride, they did not want to see me hand-fly the airplane. They wanted to see me manipulate the autopilot, program the FMS, and make it all work obviously with a co-pilot programming for the most part but what they wanted was the automation they wanted my command of the automation they really didn't give a darn if i could actually fly the airplane during the type ride other than the steep turns in the stalls i never touched the con- I, well you touched the controls but i never manipulated them solely by myself
0: you touched upon stalls what did you do in stalls? Hmm. You know, it's interesting because Greg and I
2: had this conversation a long time ago. When I was taught to do stalls coming out of Gulfstream typewriting for the number of years, it was just lower the nose just a hair, add full power, and power yourself out of the stalls. I could never understand why we never broke the stall aerodynamically in combination with that. And I remember complaining to Greg, why are we, just because we're in a powerful airplane that can do that, why would we not want to lower the nose significantly to break the stall that way, aerodynamically, as well as powering out of it? I mean, using both. And it's so funny or ironic, I should say, I can't remember which accident actually changed the FAA's uh, perception on that. And now, as of a few years ago, they want to see you in the simulator, break the stall aerodynamically, lower the nose, and lose some altitude as you're putting the power to it. And then for you actually cause the boundary layer to reattach and get back out of the stall.
1: Yeah, I remember that, Bob. I mean, when we had that conversation and I think we were talking about because the philosophy was you don't want to lose altitude because, you know, especially if you're low to the ground, you're trying to maintain altitude. You don't have a lot of margin of safety and you got all this power back there. That's great. But, you know, again, if you got if you're heavy, low and slow, you know, you don't have that. And again, all you're going to do with all that power is actually pitch that airplane up to put yourself right back or keep yourself in that aerodynamic stall. And we've seen that with little airplanes where the airplane stalls, you know, pilots will jam the power to it. The nose pitches up because of the increase in power and they put themselves right back in a stall condition. Exactly.
2: And then it, obviously it, it matters where your engines are mounted, whether they're wing mounted, slung below the wings or they're on the tail. As to whether you're going to what pitching moment you're going to get. But in in the Gulfstream, I mean, if you're going to your goal is not to lose one foot of altitude, but power yourself out of the stall, you're always going to be right on the ragged edge of restalling the aircraft or going into a deeper stall as you're trying to power out of it.
1: And one of the things that you and I have always talked about as well, amongst the zillion things that we talk about on a regular basis with flying, and that is my concern has always been you're shooting down final approach. you got the airplane trimmed for a configuration for final approach. And for whatever reason, at the last minute, you know, you get, you got to grab a handful of thrust levers, shove them to the firewall. And, you know, now you've, you've got to go around – You're going into Aspen, so you have a terrain feature you have to worry about. You're trying to maximize performance. You know, you got the gear hanging. You're trying to get that up. You're trying to clean up the flaps to the appropriate configuration. And with all that that power in pitching up, the big concern is, are you fighting a mistrimmed airplane? Because a lot of these uh, CFIT or, or missed approach procedures, especially coming out of Aspen, they don't want you I mean, I, I, the stuff I've read and, of course, some of the training I've had, uh, you know, with the 777 and, and a couple other airplanes is don't reconfigure the, the airplane, basically. Don't retrim the airplane. Now you're fighting a mistrimmed airplane.
2: Yeah, that can be, that certainly can be a problem. And obviously, uh, you know, with this new technology, it's nice that you can actually put the power, you hit the go around button. And the go around button itself will sequence you into your missed approach, and with auto throttles, it brings the power right up to max max power. Um, yeah, you can have you can have one wicked handful of airplane, and um, you know as far as as far as you're going to have to retrim it, but put the plane in the command bars, and just start trimming the nose down. And our call. Our SOP, standard operating practices uh on a missed approach is flaps missed approach is announced in the cockpit and go to flaps 20 and toga and toga is the, is, is the go-around button on the uh, on the throttle and the power levers come up and the first thing i do is you're looking for a positive rate and then the gear up but The first thing I do is kick the toga back off and reduce the power because if you don't, you're going to do a moonshot. And that's the only way I've found that works well for me. And I know a lot of other pilots do that. Some pilots won't even use the toga because of the fact what you just said, all of a sudden you've got to, a powerful airplane. You know, you're looking at uh, just under 14,000 pounds of thrust per side, and you're you're putting all that. And chances are, you might be light, which exacerbates the problem. But you put all that power in there, and I let everything take place, and then I kick the auto throttles off and bring the power back halfway. And uh, that's that's my technique, as well as a number of other guys.
1: Now, John and I have uh, talked on previous shows uh, about the Gulfstream accident at Hanscom Field up in Massachusetts, basically in John's backyard. And, of course, it's been dissected by every aviation publication. And there is, of course, a lot of finger pointing and people shaking their head how you could have two professional pilots sitting in a, in a Gulfstream four-airplane waiting, of course, on the passengers. The passengers show up, and basically it's kick the tires, light the fire, and let's get out of here. They aren't following any kind of, you know, pre-departure checklist. Of course, they're not doing any kind of flight control check. You have the gust locks engaged, and they taxi out, they power up, they go blasting down the runway, and they have one light that catches their attention. The first officer is the flying pilot. And he says, "We got rudder limit light." And the captain says, "What?" And he goes, "We got rudder limit light on the takeoff roll. And rather than just calling a halt to all of that and saying, "You know, okay, just let's go back and figure out what this what what this light is, and we'll do it again." They try to fix this on the fly, if you will. They're running down the runway on a short runway, trying to salvage a bad situation. I mean, you followed this accident. You're a Gulfstream pilot. We've talked about it at nauseum. What, I mean, how in, in anybody's right mind, flying any airplane, but a, a, that caliber of aircraft, would try to do that? Would try to salvage this bad situation rather than just calling a halt to it all and figuring it out?
2: First of all, complacency probably got them into the fact that the engines got started with the... Uh, with the gust lock on but and you have
1: experience with that because we've talked about that where yeah the happened. gust locks yeah because the gust locks if you don't get them released before engine start hydraulic pressure keeps them engaged correct
2: that's correct and years ago they had a uh, unwritten undocumented procedure which you just pull the uh, hydraulic shutoff handle and then you could stow it, put it back down, and you're good to go. The problem is that that wasn't, you're assuming everything's going to seat properly. I mean, and that's not a procedure that was ever authorized by Gulfstream, but it's one that I know has taken place. But, you know, SOPs were the biggest problem with this. Not only that, but the checklist, but we all miss things occasionally on a checklist, but that's why you have standard operating practices. One of ours is uh, any light or abnormality prior to 80 knots, we're stopping. That's standard procedure for us. And not only that, but the FAA came out with a mandatory full control check prior to the takeoff run. That's,
1: and, with, uh, and, and that's something that came out of this accident, right, Bob?
2: Correct. Yes.
1: Yeah, it's unfathomable because when you start dissecting it, and you start seeing all these failures and the fact that these guys had been doing this—this this wasn't the first time they did it. I mean, this was their their practice for quite a long time, which basically set that as a new norm for them. That was their normal practice, and there was no real system of checks and balances. That SOP that I was
2: just describing. I've been in the airplane when the trim was was not quite set. It looked like it was in the green arc, but it wasn't set properly. And on the takeoff roll, we were about, I don't know, 50 knots or so. We were just starting to get airspeed because you don't get airspeed in a Gulfstream below 40. But we just started to get airspeed, and and we got a configuration light. And we knew what it was immediately. But our SOP said stop. And we went into reverse and and uh, stopped the airplane. Embarrassing, but it happened.
1: And you bring up that word embarrassing. Why? I mean, it, it's part of prudent piloting. And, you know, some of the, the backstories with, uh, with the Gulfstream up at Hanscom is these guys didn't want to stop. Apparently, you know, some of the folks in the back, you know, would have been questioning them. And, and I know that I've talked to guys and you and I have talked about this and that is what's the problem with stopping you blame it on the airplane. Hey dude, we got a light. We had to figure out what this is so that we can, you know, live to see another day because in Hanscom they didn't live to see another day.
2: Yeah. I know that's uh, that whole situation is so unfortunate. And, you know, I've talked to a couple of their instructors at training and, these guys were good. They flew that simulator extremely well. And um, both of them. But so, you know, trying to figure out the why is
0: horrible. I've been asking pilots, or I, not recently, but after that accident, asking pilots that came through about that procedure. And I did not run into one who was not familiar with it. And I wish I had had thought at the time to ask them if they have ever done that, but I didn't at the time.
2: You're talking about the procedure of shutting the hydraulics off? Yes. Yeah, I think a lot of the guys that came up through, a lot of the experienced guys that came up through the G2, G3 era, that uh, that was kind of not standard procedure, but it was something that a lot of them had done. I'm not saying all of them, but just back then we weren't. Um, I don't know. I mean, it, it it was one of those things that was accepted. I think. On, normal
0: and auto rudder travel pitch field. Nav exterior light. Servo control. Nine. Engine start panel. Cranking aboard. Fire handle. Seat belt no smoke. exit minimum cabin alarm.
1: Tonight. Switching gears a little bit, Bob. With COVID now of course your flying is down as well as a lot of other corporate and business flight departments uh, the charter market appears to be picking up because of course company CEOs uh, prominent people want more control over their environment so they see that with charter or business versus you know going to the airport and hanging out with 6 million other people trying to get on a you know a commercial airline flight With regard to proficiency and complacency and you getting back into the swing of things, because you guys had a a pretty rigorous and robust flight schedule. Now you've been kind of flatline. Getting guys back into, and guys is a generic term, it's male and female in my book for the purpose of this discussion, but getting guys back into the, the swing of things to focus on their duties and responsibilities, getting the flight department back up to where it needs to be. And not only with the flight side, because you have you have an in-house maintenance department and making sure that those guys are back up to snuff. What does it take to do that? And is that something that's really of a concern or eh, it's not a big deal?
2: Yeah. I mean, maintaining your currency, you know, three takeoff landings in the last 90 days, three takeoff landings to a full stop at night last 90 days with COVID in the, in the very beginning before the training centers got shut down, we would always go down there and maintain our currency in the simulator. Once going to, you know, a facility that we normally train at, That became a problem. So the ideal thing, I think, which we came up with was to, the planes need exercise anyway. Because uh, one thing about a Gulfstream, if it sits, it'll break as well as any other airplane, I guess. So we've been actually using the aircraft and doing takeoff and landings in the airplane. Mm -hmm. And our our maintenance guys are top-notch. And as a matter of fact, one of them wanted me to tell John hello because he was in one of his seminars, I guess, on the West Coast not too long ago. And uh, and he really, uh, really appreciated that. But our director of maintenance is on top of everything. And they're obviously on a reduced schedule, but our airplanes are ready to go, you know, any second. So that's that's never been a problem. These guys, are they're cautious. They're... Uh, we're doing the mask, we're wiping down the cabins, we are, uh, our flight attendants wear masks, our passengers wear masks for a while. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, we do have the airplanes sterilized, and it's a trying time. It's very difficult. And, sure. uh, you know, I'm wiping down the air stair, the handles everyone uses. There's a, There's a lot that goes into that. I will not wear a mask in the cockpit. You've got enough going on up there that, unfortunately, if the guy next to you has it, yeah, you're probably going to get it. But it's not like you're on top of that person. But there's, if we ever had a rapid decompression at altitude, the last thing I want to do is have to get my mask off, get another mask on. I mean, there's just there's some
1: logistics that bother me on that. But. Yeah, and, and wrapping up this discussion. What do you see are your concerns? Again, I know that you've had a lot of exposure in the industry. You've seen a lot on both sides. That is the smaller charters and, of course, the business aviation. Where are your concerns with where this aspect of aviation is going? And, again, you know, they claim this pilot shortage has been handled. But, again, a lot of pilots left the business because of COVID. And people are still going to want to fly airplanes and they're still building airplanes. So we're going to have to fill those seats anyway. What are your takeaways and, and what's your expectations if you were to hire a new pilot into either one of the flight departments? You know, it's
2: difficult to sample someone's professionalism. It, it really is. And if if you've got someone that, number one, can fly, you can teach them the type in other words, getting into a Gulfstream, 450, 550, you can learn the systems. I mean, but it's hard to teach professionalism, and in the CRM, the crew resource management, and those aspects are are really important to me. And if you've got guys, I mean, that you got a a person that doesn't get along with the other pilot. I've seen Gulfstream's flown single pilot. And by that, I mean that you got one pilot that's got an attitude toward the other pilot and he shut down. That's never a good situation. I would want to hire a guy that he may not like the guy in the other seat, but this flight's going to end at some point, but you got to do your job. You got to be a professional. And, uh, that's one of the most, uh, most important things from my perspective. And there's, there's a lot of other things that don't come to mind right now. But understanding, I like someone that really gets into the airplane. In other words, they, they, they strive to understand it, the systems. And I also like a pilot that has a relationship with maintenance and they get along extremely well.
1: And you bring up a great point, Bob, real quick, and that is because, you know, John is the maintenance guy. Your relationship, I know what your relationship is with with your maintenance department. How critical do you think that really is? I mean, it's one thing, okay, the airplane's good to go. They said it's good to go. It's signed off. You know, it's out of the hangar. You basically just have to get in there, start it, and fly it.
2: That has probably helped me in my career more than anything else the fact that I've always gotten along with the maintenance guys because you can learn so much from them. But when a pilot comes back and says on the debrief, I felt something on takeoff. You might want to check the airplane. Now from a mechanic standpoint, where the hell do you look? Yeah, I mean, you get, you got to give them something to work with. And I've seen that happen, and I've seen our Director of maintenance. I saw the smoke come out of his ears. You've got to work with them. You're a team, and that I don't care whether you're one of our flight attendants. you're always a team and and if the catering is bad, you know something we all look bad. You always want to work together, but our we are fortunate that our maintenance guys are excellent and uh they do uh they're they go above and beyond and we kid each other all the time i anytime i'm in the office i usually have 90 percent of the time i have lunch with them and you know we talk about some of this stuff we do a debrief before each flight and after each flight and in that debrief part of it is Hey, guys, uh, what have we worked on since the last flight? What were the squawks during the last flight? What did we do? Did you change a change a main? Did you do some, some work on the brake? Did you change uh, one of the uh, MCDUs, you know, one of the the flight management systems? Where are we at with some of this stuff? And that's invaluable. I mean, be, being able to go airborne and
0: knowing that something was what was worked on, you know? Yeah. That's very important. Even mechanics want to know. I can remember picking up logbooks, and I'd always go back several pages in the logbook to see what happened recently, especially if there was a write-up to see if someone was in there that did some, worked on it or worked near it, because that's the first place you go. Look. And when I worked for the, one of the 135 charter companies, I can I remember I, we went up to. Uh, Repair station in Manchester, New Hampshire, and the airplane had been in there for a check. And I forget which one, and it was a Plattis. But I just watched. Actually, I went because I got to fly the airplane you know, because it was a ninety-one, so I could get sit in the airplane and fly it. And I just loved that airplane. But that's I digress. So anyway, we're in the hangar, and I watched the DO chief pilot and the co-pilot and. They never once asked what was done to the airplane. Never once. And they, they, the mechanic uh, supervisor handed him an envelope with all the, all the documents in it. And he got in the airplane and went out. And, and I waited until they were ready to go. And I said, okay, now we're, we're not going. He said, did you check the flight controls? Oh, yes. I moved them up and down. They were free motion. I said, did somebody check to make sure that they were going in the right direction? Oh, Critical. And yeah. of course I got the, the thousand yards there. And I said, And hey, what do you what do you know about what they did to your airplane? Do you know anything what they touched? And they didn't know anything about what was done to the airplane. And then I then I got the first officer was doing a walk around and I said, You know, your walk around coming out of maintenance was a little bit light. I said, You should open every panel and look inside. And the response to me was, well, I really don't know what I'm looking at. I said, all you're looking for is a wrench that was left behind, a rag that was left in there that doesn't belong. You're looking for the obvious. You're not doing a conformity inspection. You're just looking for the obvious. And after a while, if you do that enough, you'll know the airplane very well, and you may be able to do little basic conformity checks but you should be going, you should be looking your airplane over a whole bunch of people worked on this airplane and people make mistakes. Yes, absolutely. How much of that stuck? I don't know, but I, I drove the plane home for them. Those two crew members. Yeah,
2: that's critical. I've, I've seen that where a, a guy, they don't want to know some pilots just don't want to know what was done on the airplane. And uh, they they just, with the assumption that everything was done.
1: Well, it is it is one of those unfortunate things. And of course, being in the business that John and I are in, we see the results of those mistakes, those oversights, that complacency. And we're going to be dissecting several accidents in the near future. And that's why I want to have you back, Bob, because as we dissect these accidents, I'd love to have your perspective as, a, as an active pilot with your knowledge so that you can chime into the discussion because a couple of the accidents that John and I are going to to look at fortunately both airplanes had cockpit voice recorders and we'll be able to tell a lot from just the conversations that that are transpiring between the two crew members and and then some of the other distractions that took place with other people in the cockpit or in close proximity so we definitely want to have you back on the show it may be a long time because if you give any kinds of stories about our baseball (laughs) days or our college days to john you'll never be back on this show and i'll make sure of that
2: john you got my john you got my home phone number right so yes i have
0: it (laughs) we'll get it and we'll we'll fix his butt Absolutely. Yeah.
1: It, you'll never see the light of day again, my friend. So
0: I'll have you on without him and we'll uh, Okay, that'll work. We'll crucify him.
2: We could, we could spend oh, two hours talking about Greg Fight and Daytona Beach and wow yeah. friend, I got stories.
0: Yeah, I got pictures. So <laughs> I went to Argentina with him. He thought he was oh, far my enough gosh. away. <laughs> wow. then,
1: hey, it, it's, it was all research if I yeah. look at it as research you know? Yeah,
0: I like that line I might have to use that one myself
1: <laughs> hey don't shoot me I'm just a piano player here so <laughs> but, well <laughs> Robert we really appreciate your insights and input again we try to make this show informative we try to cut across the spectrum if you will if you didn't get anything out of Jenkins, don't worry about it. You know <laughs> that'll dictate whether he's back on or not. <laughs> but for the most part, you know we appreciate the fact that uh, we get a lot of good input. People have asked us questions about good. business aviation and charter. So again, we really appreciate having you on the show. And with John, I'm happy that our listeners are actually sending in questions and they can continue to do that on our email at flight safety detectives with an S at gmail.com. We'll try to answer your questions. John and I try to answer all the emails and get back to people because folks have given us some really good accidents to start researching some of the older accidents that have been long forgotten. They want to hear. A, uh, you and I dissect so uh, I think we're gonna we're gonna have to do that I was even thinking about going back and trying to do a little more research on a general aviation accident that killed a bunch of famous singers you know the big bopper and buddy holly yeah, it was a private pilot yeah it was a beach bonanza but there's there's so much backstory to that particular story and and how that all happened and I think that one it'll be interesting for me and you to to research it and, and dissect it, and I think the uh, the listeners would find it of interest as well. So, I'm looking forward to uh, to doing those shows in the future, and of course, you and I are getting back to dissecting some uh, some accidents. So we've got our work cut out for us. But again, we appreciate our listeners giving us these kinds of uh, suggestions. And again, if you have any questions, please don't hesitate. If you have any comments about the show? We're good, bad and ugly. We don't mind it because we learn from it. And I know that John, you know, he gets a little emotional when when people don't like something we've said. But you know what? That just makes us all better. We're working hard to to keep this show, you know, informative and entertaining. So, my friend, I know that the holiday, Christmas holiday is coming up. And, uh, of course, a lot of people are going to be traveling. A lot of people traveled at Thanksgiving, as uh, I personally found out. There was some concern there. And, of course, Christmas coming up and people want to travel, there could be some concern as well. So uh, if you do travel, travel safe. I'm going to be doing a little traveling myself. So I hope you enjoy the holiday. Hopefully I'll be talking
0: to you before that. I'm sure we will. And I'd like to remind everybody that this show is brought to you by Avemco. So if you're in the market for insurance and you want a 5% discount, give them a call. 888-879-0389. If you're going to fly, please fly safely. And in our personal lives, please maintain all the precautions. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, my own daughter has ended up with the virus. Fortunately, she's on the tail end of it now with no real serious consequences other than she can't smell or taste anything. And I hope that passes, but this is nothing to laugh at. This is nothing to take for granted. So please pay attention, wear your mask, be socially distanced. It appears restaurants are are very risky, so I would avoid those at all possible costs. And with that, fly safe. To listen to more episodes of the show, go to flightsafetydetectives.com
1: or the Professional Aviation Maintenance Association at pama.org and wherever you find your favorite podcasts.
0: Catch us next time when John Golia and Greg Fife talk about all things aviation. Thanks for listening.